Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 1st, we are studying Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. St. Paul has said that Christians owe these things to governing authorities, but what about our other neighbors? What do Christians owe them? One thing, says St. Paul, love. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Mark Bars. Pastor Bars serves at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, it's great to be back with you, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you this morning. As we get started this morning, Pastor Bars, put this text into the context, large and small, what what kinds of things do we need to know going into the words that we're going to read from St. Paul today? Well, I'm going to start by saying something that Lutherans will always ask whenever we read, study, listen to God's Word. It can be in a Bible class such as this one. It can be in a Sunday morning sermon. We're always listening if we're hearing law or gospel. And if it's law, then what use of the law? Is it the curb? Is it the mirror? Is it the ruler or the guide? So from that, and, and it's a very similar question, but, but a different question is, is this section of God's word, is it about justification or sanctification? Now, I had a little fun in some of my preparations by paging through the Lutheran service book in the hymns and Maybe our hearers don't think that would be a lot of fun, but but I enjoy doing that. And there's there is a table of contents and it lists the categories. But I was turning the pages and looking at all of the different hymns that are noted and seeing how they move from hymns about Christ as Redeemer. And so so after the church here is what happens is after the church here, then there's a section on hymns of the Redeemer and justification, and then a large section on the Christian church, from the Word of God to baptism, confession, and absolution, the Lord's Supper, the church, ordination, and installation. And that takes us from hymns, what, 523 to 680, so 150 hymns. And then we get one with a section on sanctification. So I will pose this to those who are listening this morning. How much of this text from Romans uh, chapter 13, how much is justification and how much is sanctification? And I I did choose one of those hymns that I'll bring us back to at the very end from the sanctification section that I think fits fits very well. I'll also add another bit of Lutheran background. I, I, I suspect that some of our hearers know that that Martin Luther and Romans are are two two things that go very much together. Luther came to Wittenberg in 1512 to lecture to be a lecturer on the Bible. He first lectured on the Psalms, but then he chose Romans for his second series of lectures. And it's clear that 
God used Romans to to bring the gospel to him in clarity and and in certainty when he did so. So these lectures happened from 1515 in the spring until the late summer of 1516. And this would be a, something that you and I might have had a little bit of a problem with when we were at seminary. But these lectures were on Mondays and Fridays, and they were at 6 o'clock in the morning. They had to show up with their quill sharpened and their ink ready to take their notes. So Romans and Luther, and there will be a few comments about that that I, that I hope to add a little bit later on. So now the, the closer context. That, that's a broad context within Lutheran thinking and, and uh, our understanding of law and gospel. But how does this section now fit into the entire book of Romans? So without taking people back too far, there was a doxology at the end of chapter 11. It closed those first 11 chapters, the teaching portion of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And then there is a therefore, and uh, I remember hearing years ago, my pastor, who was my dad, say, whenever there is a therefore, you always need to know what, what it's there for. So the therefore began a section of what does it mean to live this out? And Paul said in 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then in he says some things about uh, the excellent love that is there in chapter 12, but we are in chapter 13. The immediate context is that he has spoken of, he has written to the church in Rome about submission to authorities. Now, in our times right now, in what our country and indeed what our world is going through, I do believe that this section from Romans 13, which was last Friday's, which was last Friday's study, does have some strong implications for how we uh, respond to the government, even in, in challenging times. But the submission to authorities and to government is followed now by submission to our neighbors. And there is also language of debt and what is owed. And I'll come back to that when we jump into verse 8 in just another minute or two. The, the last thing I would say in terms of the shape and the form of these seven verses is to listen for and to look for the contrast. Not, not really the opposites, but there are any number of contrasts. There are images that that do have, by, by showing them in their contrast with each other, uh, the words and the themes will be very illuminating. And uh, there's debt and owing, there's love and law, there's love and wrong, there's time and hour and wake and sleep and darkness and light and night and day. And there is the putting on of the Lord and then the desires of the flesh. So there is a lot in this that we can, I think, understand more and gain more than when we're aware of and seeing the contrast. There's maybe more introduction than, than our listeners were, were asking for, but, but there are some points that I would give to, give to our listeners right now. All of all of that is very important, particularly the the matter of the contrast within the text. And maybe maybe contrast isn't always the not contrast in the sense of black and white, but but rather maybe different facets of things that, when seen together, offer 
clarity to put together a a picture of sorts, which sometimes can be a challenge in an epistle, where it's very much teaching and instruction, and that's good, but to have a a picture in our minds, more like when you know when we, we're in the Gospels, there's these narratives where we're picturing what's happening in our minds. These contrasts here in this text, or these various facets that Paul's going to bring out of the matter of what is this love that we owe, is going to help us form a, a picture and hopefully take these words into our hearts to learn them, to to inwardly digest them, as that wonderful collect for the word reminds us. So with that, let's jump right in. We're in Romans 13, beginning of verse 8. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That is the text for today, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Pastor Bars, there's an immediate connection here in verse 8 to what Paul just said in verse 7, it's this matter of owing or owing someone, having a debt. Paul says in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Take us into this language, this picture that Paul gives us here in verse 8. So in the in the previous verses, in that section that is dealing with government and uh, God placing those authorities, we call that the left-hand kingdom. Within the left-hand kingdom, even Christians owe respect to governing authorities. They owe taxes and revenue, respect and honor, and all of these are debts that need to be repaid. Now, we have paragraph divisions in our modern and English translations, and sometimes they're helpful and maybe sometimes they're not because we might say, well, that section is over, so let's move on to something else. But it's very clear when Paul continues in verse 8, owe no one anything, you have uh, this paying of an obligation is the strength of that word. But he says, except to love each other. Uh, There's also something, uh, I I smile when I think about this, because because, uh, the Greek says, owe no one nothing. Uh, And and that's not the way we talk in English because we don't we don't think double negatives are, are proper. So we say, "Owe no one anything." But no, it it sounds even it sounds even a little a little more dramatic that way. Now, it, it did it did ponder, and I'll ask you, Pastor Apple, this: uh, Are you familiar, or to what degree are, might you be familiar with Dave Ramsey and Financial Peace University? I've never gone through it myself. I know some who have, so I. I... I know a little bit. I know he's he's not too much, not too big on on debt, from what I understand. 
that would be an understatement. Yes, <laughs> very, very certainly. So, uh, and and we we have hosted it here on several occasions in our congregation. We haven't done so for the last three years or so, and it's it's been something that my wife and I, Connie and I, have have learned from. Um, There's some things I have. I'm not so not so sure about how he approaches certain things. I know Lutheran Witness had an article maybe a couple of years ago uh, with some Lutheran perspectives on it which was which was helpful. But but here's one thing he does. And it, and I believe it's usually on his Friday broadcast. He's had people call him and they've had oh, I don't know, $150,000 in debt and they've paid it off in two and a half years. They some remarkable stories. But then he asked them to even scream out on his radio show, I'm debt-free. Well, Paul would say, no, not in that sense. The money thing is one issue, but you will always owe this debt to love one another. So we can deal at another time with one of the sponsors being the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. <laughs> Should churches have loans and for you know to expand and, and grow ministry? And what about us as individuals and all that? But that's that's a different issue. But owe no one anything. You have a constant and continual debt. You won't pay it off with money, but you pay it with love. And and this is this is a marvelous way of of approaching it for for Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us these words that there will never come a time that a follower of Christ will say well I've I've loved enough or I've loved you enough this one person and and that's it no this is an ongoing debt to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law now, now this is a change in his in his direction. Uh, not that Paul hasn't talked about the law, which he does plenty of in Romans, but what does it mean that love and loving another fulfills the law? So in verse nine, he he references a number of the commandments. We would consider these commandments from the second table. The first table of the law, our relationship with God. The second table, a horizontal relationship, our relationship with our neighbor. And so he says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandments, singular, it's interesting that it's singular, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, before I go any farther with that, it it does call to my mind, and perhaps for some of those who are listening and studying with us this morning, the expert in the law, uh, the Jewish lawyer who comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Again, another study for another day because you don't do anything to inherit, but the questioning and the give and take with Jesus at first is, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer says, well, it says two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your strength and soul and heart and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is from Leviticus and Leviticus 19. And Paul quotes that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul himself knows the law very well. 
in two of his letters in Galatians and Philippians, in Galatians 1, he, he's not bragging. He's just telling his story. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my elders. And in Philippians 3, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he uses the law, but then he says, and, and it is a radical thought that the law is fulfilled by loving one another. It's not, as the Brits would say, ticking all the boxes. Have I done the fourth commandment? Have I done the fifth commandment? Have I done the sixth? Whoops, I messed up back here. I need to, I need to try harder and, and do better. But rather that love becomes the fulfilling, the fulfilling of the law. I'll pause and, and we'll have a little bit of give and take on that for a moment, if, if you wish to. Right. I actually, I want to jump back to the very beginning, to this matter of of owing no one anything. Mm-hmm. And and when yes. so back in in uh, it was in Romans chapter eight. I was having this conversation with uh, Pastor AJ Espinoza, who's the host of Thy Strong Word here on KFU, and I I well I don't remember the exact conversation, but I I remember making a note of it mentally because in Romans eight verse twelve. Paul says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. And, and there he says, not to the flesh. And, and it struck me as odd when I was reading through Romans 8 that Paul would call us debtors. But here you get that same language again of, of a debt, that Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. And I, I want to I tell me what you think of this. I, I want to make a connection here to the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And when you take a look at that in the Greek, the language is not, is really this language of debt rather than trespass. Mm-hmm. And and so, and then the other thing that comes to my mind scripturally when we start talking about debts and debts being forgiven is Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus tells the parable that's normally called, I think, the parable of the unforgiving servant, but you could call it the parable of the gracious master. You've got this mm-hmm. one servant who's amassed a debt of a ridiculous amount of trillions of dollars, modern day speech, and and he begs the master to, to let him have time to pay it back, and the master forgives the debt. Now that, that servant who has forgiven the debt turns around and refuses to forgive the debt of a fellow servant. And so, I mean, I'm trying to put some of this all together here with what Paul is saying here, too, that this matter of of having no debt except the debt to love each other, uh, I think we, we need to—those to, uh, passages invite us to found this in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus first. My debt of sin has been forgiven— by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now and and I think that that comes to bear as Paul continues into this text when he starts talking about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we notice and I'm I'm sure we'll get to this that Paul when he's talking about love fulfilling the law, he's primarily talking about the second table of the law so that because the first table of the law is fulfilled in in the faith that that Christ gives to us. So I I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to draw these lines and I'm probably not articulating it very well. But that, that the reason we owe the debt of love to each, each other is because Christ has 
paid the debt of sin that was ours, and now that's that's all that's left because my my standing before God, the righteousness that I have, is one that He gave to me, and now this is the debt that I have because that's that's all that's left, and it's really a a freedom from from sin and freedom to love. I I don't know if I'm not I may not be making I may not be drawing the lines oh. as clearly as I I could, but can you can you help flesh some of that out? Well, I think I think you've suggested, Pastor Apple, what what is going through the minds of some of our listeners as well when you hear debts. What what are other images of Scripture that that uh, that are there? From you're right, from the parable of the of the uh, unmerciful servant, but the the gracious master, and and I will suggest this one as well uh, from from the Gospel of John when when Jesus says from the cross, "It is finished." And the Greek there, although he was speaking Aramaic on the cross, but John records it in Greek and says, tetelestai, the debt is paid in full. Mm-hmm. So, so the debt is paid, the debt of sin, the debt of guilt, uh, the complete forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And, and now, how is it that, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Psalm 116. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't. I can't. That is, that is that is not even not even begin to be a possibility. But in love, we live out the rescue that that we are given, and and that I think is why Paul can use the language of the commandments when he writes to the church in Rome. He perhaps assumes more than than any one of us. Even even those of us who went to seminary start opening up the Bible and start reading this section in in Romans 13, and there's this commandment and there's that commandment. But but the Jew, excuse me, the Jew knew how the commandments began. The Jew knew that the ten words. Sorry about that. That the ten words began with a word of gospel. That I am the God who has brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I have rescued you. I have made you my own people. So the first word is always gospel. It it takes us to Romans 12, certainly in response to the mercies Mm. of God. This is how the people of God live. Mm. Right. I mean, and that's that's where my mind was going, too, as you were talking there. Back to Romans 12, verse 1, as you said, what's the therefore? What's it there for? Well, he starts that section, this section that we're in, actually, by the mercies of God. And those mercies of God, that's what he's spent the whole first 11 chapters laying out. And, and you know, prior, prior to my study here on Sharper Iron, I, I might have had a hard time figuring out how 9 through 11, that section where Paul's dealing with the, the mystery of Jew and Gentile and the salvation and how, how those who, who should have known rejected and, and the Gentiles who weren't even looking for it, they were received by faith. That may seem a bit out of place at times, but even that fits into this matter of the mercies of God, that throughout history— in his dealings with both Jew and Gentile alike, God has been showing mercy. He he laid Paul laid that out in chapters one through eight in a in a very uh, doctrinal is the right way to say it, but in a very structured way of of showing that you are saved by grace through faith, not by your works. This is all what Christ has done. He's he's shown how that played itself out in history for Jew and Gentile alike in chapters nine through eleven, and then starting in chapter twelve. 
Then he, he says, well, by these mercies, everything that you just heard in the first 11 chapters, by these mercies, I'm appealing to you now. And and we're in that section. And, and that's where this, this debt of love that we owe shows up. It's all founded upon the mercy of God in Christ. And, and, and we have to start there. And Paul is going to continue to pull us back to that in this text. We're going to see it especially in the in the last three or four verses of the text where he really pulls us back to that. He starts using this language of, of clothing and, and light, but we'll, we'll get to that probably on the other side of the break. Uh, Pastor Bars, before I get too far afield from the text, and before we take our break here in about two minutes, this matter of the commandments that Paul lists, one thing that that may strike us as a bit unusual is that Paul does not list all of them, and notably absent from what we would call the second table of the law, those that deal with the commands or commands how to love our neighbor. You're missing the fourth commandment concerning honor for father and mother, and you're also missing the eighth commandment, the matter of false testimony against your neighbor. Is there a reason Paul lists lists those, leave those out, and list the ones that he does? I've had to ponder that as well, and and I think my answer will be I'm still pondering that. Uh, it, it perhaps it's this: he chooses the ones that probably speak more strongly to how do I show my love to, for my neighbor. You and I know that when we teach the fourth commandment, we say these are your neighbors, your parents are your neighbors, your children are your neighbors, your siblings are your neighbors, the those those in your family. And, and when we teach the Eighth Commandment, the, the words I say that either hurt or protect my neighbor are, are my care for my neighbor as well. He uses such, such strong language, and I wonder if when he, when he continues in this section, the examples that he will use of, of the, way, the ways of darkness or living in the darkness, those will reflect this a little bit more. We can only ponder the, the mystery of the Spirit of God inspiring him to, to do so, and, and yet in each one of them, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbor not, not because you should love your neighbor instead of yourself, but you love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Luther, Luther comments that even in our natural sinfulness, we, we place ourselves above others. We, we want what we want for ourselves. We want it for our own sake. And even if we love our neighbors in that impure sense or we treat our neighbors well, well, it's because I want to get something from it. I want to get something but he also helps us, and this is from some one of his lectures, he says, no one wishes to be robbed, harmed, killed, or to be the victim of adultery, to be lied to, that sounds like the Eighth Commandment, and victimized by perjury, or have his property coveted. So in loving our neighbor, we do see ourselves as loved by God the Father in Christ his Son, and that too, is such an important way of seeing who we are, whose we are, and my love for my neighbor is because God has given me value. God has loved me. He's called me his son, his daughter. He said, he says in my baptism, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so that love now from God in Christ, we love because he first loved us. Yes, we love him 
vertically. We love others horizontally. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, June 1st. We are studying Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14 with Pastor Mark Bars, who serves at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, prior to the break, we left off in verse 10, where Paul says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And what I love about what Paul does here is that he doesn't leave that word love undefined. He puts it in context. And I think this is a temptation for us, particularly in the English-speaking world, where the word love is used in such wide variety of contexts and can have a great range of meaning, it's tempting for us to have our own preconceived definition of love in mind, bring that to the scriptures, and and we, we miss what they're trying to say. Rather, Paul here defines what love is for us through these commandments. Dig further into those words of Paul in verse 10 for us. Thank you. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, our love to and for God is not the fulfilling of the law. You said earlier that this is the, the Spirit-breathed gift of faith. This is, we love because he, because he first loved us, but now love turned horizontally, our love, our love for our neighbor. Love as the fulfilling of the law. And you're right, this is not abstract. It's not sentimentality. It, it's not permissiveness. Um, what does love for my neighbor look like? What is that authentic love? That really takes us back into chapter 9 again, um, where Paul speaks to it as well. But love is concrete, and love is made concrete when it is connected to specific biblical commands. How is it lived? What does it, what does it look like? One of the, one of the things that that I have to come to when I was pondering this is is Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that chapter, that, that love chapter. I know it's read often in a beginning of marriage service, and, and that's fine, even, even though it doesn't speak to marriage directly. It is, it is language to the, to the whole church. But in verses 1, 2, and 3, the exact same words Paul says, but have not love. If if I do all these things, if I say all these things, but have not love. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, this is in 1 Corinthians 13 again, love does not insist on its own way. So, so what is its way? Love is the fulfilling of the law. God's intent is 
giving the law to his people, the word, the covenant word to his people, and it reaches its fullness. It is fulfilled when and only when it is enacted, it is lived out in love. Because, but if I have not loved, it, it is empty. So in following his word, in hearing his word, there is that fullness. It is fulfilled when it is enacted in love. Yeah, that that that's a, I like the way you said that that it reaches its fullness when lived out in love. That First Corinthians thirteen chapter is key. Romans chapter twelve verse nine, where where Paul says, "Let love be genuine," and then he goes on to list so many ways as to what that looks like comes into play here too. And and all of this love does no wrong to the neighbor. So love is the fulfilling of the law. Now with with that verse and. And here you you do have the paragraph breaks you you mentioned earlier these these sections these paragraph breaks that we see in our English text are not there in the Greek and sometimes they're they're helpful. Here is one of those places where and again it, it it's continuous text, but I do think that Paul shifts the image. In in verses 8 through 10 the the guiding image is this matter of the debt of love that we constantly owe to the neighbor. In verse 11 the image shifts and he starts talking about time. He starts talking about being asleep or being awake. He starts talking about day and night and light and darkness. And so I, I do think the image starts to shift. He he builds on this picture of love and the debt we owe. And the reason that it's urgent is because of the time that we live in. Take us into to verse 11. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come. And, and we might think, and in some ways, uh, in ways of Scripture and in the Hebrew language, often parallel images, time, hour, and, and perhaps there's, there's some of that. But, but Paul uses a very specific word when he says time. It's chiron here. It, it comes from the actual noun kairos. So that's one of the words for time in Greek, and the other one is chronos, uh, that you don't, they don't need to worry about how they're spelling them, but if they want to look them up later on, of course, of course they want chronos becomes the English word chronology, a listing of when things happen. It's the counting of time, and I like to say this about kairos, it is time that counts. Chronos counts time. Kairos is time that counts, and and others have said it this way. It's the difference between ordinary time and opportune time. And here in verse 11, it is Chiron. It is that opportune time. One one translator calls it momentous time. It it is it is time that calls us to action. And so the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. It is. It is time to wake up. It is time to wake up from sleep. Uh, and Luther, in his in his pithy way, he says, sometimes Christians are living lukewarm lives and are snoring in their smugness. Um, I don't think I snore, but I don't know if I do or not. I don't listen. But the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And then he continues in verse 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This always has to be and, 
and and we Lutherans love to love to say this and to find hints and images of of baptism when you first believed, when when faith was first planted in your heart. And for the Roman Christians, for many of them, they were coming out of paganism, but but they could still remember hearing the gospel and and the Spirit bringing and working faith working faith in their hearts. So salvation is nearer. There is within this last section, verses 11, 12, and 13, particularly this now and not yet language. There is, it, it is now, but it is, but it is still not yet. So in this momentous time, it is now time to wake up because your salvation is nearer and the day is at hand because to imagine dawn breaking on the eastern horizon for those of you who at certain times have had to be up really really early to get to the airport or whatever it is and and to see even the hint of dawn before the sun actually breaks breaks the horizon Paul is saying that day is at hand. There is the now of, yes, your salvation, the salvation that has been given to you. You first believe, but there's a not yet. There is another day, another day coming. He even, he even describes this, I think, as though it's, it's that curious but brief time when it's both night and day, when, when it's still dark, and yet I'm, I'm pointing east you can't tell tell that i am but i'm pointing to the east when i when i see the dawn and i see the brightness just beginning on that horizon that's what paul is saying that is the time that you are in now as the body of christ as the church of christ hmm. so i mean cuz on the one hand back in Romans chapter 8, the chapter began with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you have salvation now, Paul would tell you. And yet here he's going to say that, well, salvation is nearer than when we first believe. In other words, it's there's something still coming. And I I think all of this language of, of night and day, the hour coming, the time being at hand, the idea of, of waking from sleep— a lot of this recalls language that our Lord uses in the Gospels when he when he speaks about his his return. So the matter of loving others, the the debt that we owe, Paul is grounding that and this this way of life that he's talking about, this love that does no wrong to the neighbor and therefore fulfills the law, that is grounded and it's an urgent matter. We're about it right now because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us, is coming again soon. And it, it seems that this, I mean, all of that language that Paul is using here is bringing that to mind for the reader to, to I mean, as, as the basis for what he's talking about. And one of the challenges to us, it has to be, it's not been a challenge just to us in the year 2020, but but anyone past the first century, the the immediacy of of the letters and the, and of Christ's own words that I've, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me. Words that we have heard during this Easter season, and 
and words that are that are so strong, and how the disciples heard those and longed for those words to be kept. The ascension that was just just a little while ago, and and the angels telling the disciples on the Mount of Olives, He will come back in the same way as you have seen Him go. So the the now and the not yet, the longing for for what is yet to be revealed, what is yet to happen. We live in the now. We live in the now. Our salvation is given to us. We long for the not yet. The return of Christ is ever nearer and always nearer. And this has been true, as Paul wrote to the Romans, it has been true as as our Lord spoke. The night is advanced far. It, it says it says in our in our text um, that that simply that you know the time the hour has come salvation is near the night is far gone it is at towards its final stage and we live with that hope we live with that longing of the day of the lord not a day to be feared but a day of our lord's glorious return a day of that that great resurrection when as we confess in the creeds the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is is what we what we long for and in that time we live in love we love our neighbor we we live out all that we are all that we are given we live out our new identity in Christ in this now not yet in this time of in betweenity eternity uh, not fully realized yes we are already made eternal in Christ and, and loved from eternity and, and made to live with him but but we live still in in betweenity for the time being I think that the image that you you brought out earlier of the matter of, of seeing the the dawn coming that the night is gone that the dawn is right there you see this even in the placement of this text within the church here. It, this this text from Romans 13 is the epistle reading for the first Sunday in Advent. If you're in the three-year, it's in the series A, the one that's paired with Matthew's Gospel. And it's also the epistle for the one-year lectionary every year on that first Sunday in Advent, right when the, the church is thinking about both of those things, the the hope of the last day, and also then we're starting over as, as we wait for the Lord's return, we're starting over that that narrative of of his coming into this earth with to to on Advent one, I mean, it's just to see the placement of this text there within the church. I think is a, a very helpful thing as well, and and I I mean I I really associate this text with Advent for that reason. It has a lot of those those Advent themes of our Lord's coming to us. Not only the the coming that we celebrate when we get ready for Christmas, but the coming to us now in his word and sacrament, especially is coming on the last day. And and all of that, Paul would, would have us say here, has an effect. This this matter of, of knowing that we live in in the in-betweenity. I, I like that. I'm gonna have to start using that. The in-betweenity right now, that that makes a difference in the way that we live. And the way Paul talks about it, now he he continues with this matter of night and day of darkness and light. And and he says to cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. He talks about the way that we walk then. You you mentioned, I'm going to just throw a lot of stuff at you, Pastor Bars, and you can, you can respond as you want. You mentioned earlier the baptismal language here, this matter of being clothed. 
putting off and, and putting on. This is baptismal language. Help us into, I guess we're at we're at verse, second half of verse 12, the casting off works of darkness and putting on the armor of the light. Well, well, first of all, I would I would like to echo your comment about where this falls in the church year, and it's it is interesting at that time of the church year. It is also the time when days are getting shorter, right? Mm-hmm. And the night is getting longer, and yet and yet we are waiting. The Advent people of God are waiting for for arise, shine, for your light has come. Christmas and Epiphany, when when days are getting longer, because because the sun of righteousness is is shining on us. So there's there are some great ideas there, some great thoughts there. So to cast off, I, I do think it's interesting that that the language of of Paul, the verbs he uses, even as we translate them into English, I think we sense some some. Uh, this is one of those contrasts. You don't just take off the works of darkness you throw them off you you cast them off you 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 don't want to be wearing these but the putting on uh, it's not a requirement it's not in the baptismal liturgy per se it can be done it can be done to to put on a baptismal garment and then to use a funeral pall we hope later, later in life, but sometimes not to cover a casket or or to cover ashes with a pall and say, you are clothed, you are clothed with Christ. We, we have a family here at Crown of Life. They have three children. Uh, the first child was born uh, and baptized before they came here. But, but when they moved to San Antonio and became members of this congregation, their second child was born. And they said to me, they said, Pastor Bars, we have a custom for our children's baptism. And I thought, well, you have one child so far. This is your second child, but it's already a custom. I like this. And that is to bring the child to the font wearing black. Mm. And and then after the baptism, to put the baptismal garment, and it was a long gown, and, and it covered the black completely. It, it, it was a, a profound image. And I thought, we should have everybody do that. Um, this is a little bit of an aside because you used to live in San Antonio. The problem with wearing a, a black onesie for a child is it might have the San Antonio Spurs written on it. But <laughs> but we could we we could we could try to find one that that doesn't that doesn't have that. But the works of darkness put on the armor of light. Now the armor of light. I'm not so sure. I. I think that's the best translation. It it can be armor, it can be weapons, but it can be more broadly instruments or equipment. Uh, in Ephesians, of course, he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. I will suggest this as the wardrobe for waking to and walking in the daytime. We put on these clothes. Now, in the first century church, in the first century culture, uh, not not just the church, it, it would be a little bit uncertain whether people uh, put on night clothes, as they are sometimes called, uh, night clothes, pajamas, uh, and then putting on day clothes. I mean, we're used to that. We we take our clothes off, we put other clothes on, night clothes, we take night clothes off, and, and we put day clothes on, right? But Paul uses that language, that there are not the clothes of the night of the works of darkness, but put on the instruments, the equipment of light and for walking for walking in the daytime. 
maybe to phrase it another way, to put on those those garments that citizens of this new kingdom wear. This is this is who we are. We live in such a way, verse 13 says, let us walk properly or decently in the daytime. And then and then he uses in, in a very negative way, but this is what I suggested earlier that the commandments listed are, are somewhat echoed here in the second half of verse 13. And uh, pairs of vices that that have to do first with with excesses of gluttony and of feasting, and then of sexuality and sensuality, and then in quarreling and jealousy and envy. And are those randomly chosen? Well, well, we affirm that that Paul writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But but here is what I suggest and ask you to ponder: Does does the first one lead to the second one, and the second one to the third one? Well, I don't mean that in that way that that they get worse and worse. Sin is sin, but this is what one sin does: it pulls, it tugs, it 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 creates that that opening for other actions, whether in thoughts, desires, words, or deeds. But then in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Origen, one of the one of the early church fathers, uh, died in the mid-third century. He he said it this way very simply: Jesus Christ is the clothing of the saints. How, how simple and how wonderful is that language to to put on the clothing of the saints, which is to put on Christ. Paul uses language very similar to this in Galatians 3 and Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 about being clothed, being clothed with Christ. And and then to not make provision, he doesn't use it. He doesn't use it as as clothing language, but but I would suggest don't don't feed, don't make provisions, don't feed the flesh. Luther's language of the devil, the world in our flesh. And while we live prior to the day of the Lord and the resurrection, yes, our sinful flesh is always there. So the putting on and and the force of that that imperative, I urge you to put on Christ and do it now. It's really calling them. To their full and their new and their wonderful identity that they are given. Going, taking us back to Romans six, we we are we have died with Christ, we are buried with Christ, we are raised with Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I'm, I'm, and I, we're running short on time, and I know you, I want to get you back to where you started with some of that the hymnody that you looked at, but just to comment briefly on the on the baptismal custom that you mentioned, I, I really like that, and and especially with just the the image of the child, the person who is brought to baptism, coming wearing those, those filthy garments of their own, and then being clothed in Jesus Christ himself, as, as Paul says in verse 14. And, and that that is—and and, and I understand that, that maybe armor isn't the best translation, but that that, that simple what looks to us— as a simple baptismal garment, just this this white garment, and how many children are baptized in in white? I mean, it looks so plain, and yet how useful it actually is. That this this is what what saves from sin, death, and hell, and from the flesh. That this is what actually equips you to live as a child of the light. 
this simple water and word through which the Holy Spirit works is, is just a, a, a fantastic image. So, Pastor Bars, as, as we as we close this morning, I know you started us off with talk about law and gospel and justification and sanctification, and, and you were looking through the hymns of, of Lutheran service book, and I, I think you said you wanted to come back to one of them. Help us to, to wrap things up this morning. So I mentioned earlier how justification and sanctification are actually two different hymn categories in the Lutheran service book, but separated by oh, 100 and almost 150 hymns. So in the second to the last hymn in those under sanctification, it's hymn number 706, and the title is Love in Christ is Strong and Living. It's also, curiously, one of the few written by a husband and wife team. The words are by Dorothy Schultz, and the melody, the tune, is by by Ralph Schultz. And in that lower right-hand corner, some of our listeners are aware of this, and some are probably not. There's always a reference, at least one reference, sometimes multiple references. There are several that are listed there. But Romans 13, 8 through 10 is not, but it could be. So, Love in Christ is strong and living, binding faithful hearts in one. Love in Christ is true and giving. May his will in us be done. The third stanza, love in Christ abides forever, fainting not when ills attend. Love forgiving and forgiven shall endure until life's end. We are called to love to always love, to owe our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors who may not believers only one thing, which is love. It is the Father's love given to us so that it can be shared in our love for others, to love in our serving and to serve by our loving. Pastor Mark Bars is the pastor at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Pastor Bars, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. The day is at hand. The night is far gone. You have been clothed with Jesus Christ in holy baptism, this garment that equips you to live as his child of light. It has been put upon you, and daily, in contrition and repentance, your sins are drowned, and the new man arises, arises Jesus Christ, whom, who has clothed you with his righteousness, and now you are set free to owe no one anything except, except to love one another. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.